This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. It's like clockwork, isn't it? This time of year, festivals kick off, the debate starts around pill testing. You've heard it here on Hack plenty of times before. And unfortunately, what you've also heard too many times on this podcast are reports of young people dying at music festivals. And so with two deaths over the weekend, we're asking again, are we any closer to real changes and reform in this area across the country? We're going to be getting into that a bit later on this podcast. Also ahead, we're talking career advice at school. Is it actually helping students or is it just confusing them? We're diving into that. First off, though, a warning. This story that we're going to discuss now uh, talks about sexual assault and suicide. It's full on. If you think you might need to tune out, now's probably the time. Hack. It's clear that the protocols were not followed. It's clear that there were a number of failings. On Triple J. Did you know that the rate of young people being admitted to a mental health unit has doubled in the past decade? But we don't talk about it much because there's still a lot of shame and stigma associated with it. Maybe you know if you've spent time in a mental health ward yourself that they can often be really scary places, you don't know what's going on. Most of us though think when we go to a hospital we're going to be kept safe. But in Australia that's not always the case and part of the problem is that almost all public mental health units are mixed gendered and that means you've got acutely unwell people of all ages and sexes being treated in the same space. And experts are saying this can be dangerous for young women especially. We're going to hear from a teenager who experienced this danger when she was admitted to hospital. She had no idea about the potential risks or what she was about to go through. But she's sharing her story now with reporter Ayla Darling as part of a joint investigation between Hack and the ABC's investigation unit. We're on our way to the hospital where Florence was attacked. That's Luke. His dad to a girl we'll call Florence. A 15-year-old girl known for her wicked humour and love of art. Her parents say she's one of those annoying people who is good at everything. I'm in their family car, about to drive past Perth Children's Hospital. Makes, makes me sick to my stomach, just even driving past here myself, just thinking of all those days that we came through here. And... That's Florence's mum, Rachel. She says her daughter is so traumatised by what happened inside the hospital. They can't drive down this road without her self-harming. So we've just come around and around about now, just driving into the shittest place ever. Does it feel weird being here? It does, because I don't like it here, as I've been here twice to deal with Florence, and both of those times have been horrific due to the attacks that have happened to that poor girl. We've changed Florence and her parents' names for this story. It's both a legal requirement, but it also keeps her safe. Florence struggles to talk about what happened to her. Like many teen girls, she keeps a diary and has shared an entry from it with Hack. These are her words, but not her voice. I'm not the most comfortable talking about this, but I can write it down. Last year, Florence was admitted to the child and adolescent ward. Three months earlier, Florence had been raped by a stranger she met online. And uh, that was the worst day of our life or so we thought. She was having a really rough time. Her psychologist suggested she be admitted. It was a direct admission. It was basically, go home, pack a bag, take a straight there. This is the first time Florence had been to a mental health ward. And I remember just leaving her and just crying just the whole way home because 
You, as a mum, you just want to be... The family thought it was the safest place for her to be. In reality, it ended up making things much worse. Florence wrote about her first night in the ward. I was shocked that girls and boys were together, but I didn't think much of it. After just a few hours on the ward, Florence had a really scary interaction with one of the male patients. He told her he was gonna drug the nurses so he could do stuff to her. She was too scared to tell the staff and was worried even if she did speak up, they wouldn't believe her. The night of the incident is still so clear to me. That night, Florence woke up to the male patient entering her room. He allegedly raped her. I was just frozen, knowing he was so much larger than me. I didn't fight back. Throughout the whole ordeal, Florence kept waiting for the nurses to come in and help her. I fell asleep, hugging my knees up to my chest, hoping he wouldn't come back in. Three hours later, the nursing staff finally came into her room. I was woken up by flashlights and nurses ordering me to get up and leave the room so they could search it. I was told to undress and get changed with them all watching. Despite an internal investigation, we still don't know why the nurses ordered her to undress. We've seen the hospital's report into that night and heaps of it is redacted. Florence and her family are still trying to make sense of how this could happen from the small amount of information the hospital has given them. The male patient had lined up the chairs that were around the PlayStation and television area and had used those as a, a barrier um, so that he could crawl along under, sort of behind them so that he was out of sight and that was how he was able to get into Florence's room. They were also really disturbed to learn that staff said they didn't do the required hourly checks because they too were fearful of the male patient. In the report they said that they were scared for their safety. The family hasn't even been able to obtain the CCTV footage and critical sections of the report into the alleged rape are blacked out. The family is considering taking legal action against the hospital. There's security at that hospital 24 hours a day. I do not understand why this happened, why no one was called. But Florence says she doesn't blame the boy for what happened to her. Even though that boy wrecked a part of me, I know he was let down by the system too. We were supposed to be protected. In a statement, Valerie Jovanovic, Chief Executive, Child and Adolescent Health Service, said that immediate and comprehensive support was provided to those involved and referrals were made to relevant authorities. She said that a full review was conducted immediately and that recommended actions have since taken place and further work continues. Florence is sharing her story because she wants to stop this from happening to someone else. For months, I wish she would have taken my life that night and saved me from the shame. She's actually willing to take the real hard road to get this story out. And even for us, reliving the situation again is quite hard. Florence is gutted to find out assaults like hers are so common. Knowing I'm not the only one shatters me. Hack on Triple J.
Ayla Darling with that report. And today, WA's health minister spoke to the media about this story, admitted that protocols had not been followed on the night Florence said she'd been raped and that staff working that night had been disciplined and don't work there anymore. If that story has raised anything for you, remember you can always call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or there is the National Domestic Family and Sexual Violence Counselling Line. That's on 1800 Respect and there are messaging options there as well. The ABC investigations team and Hack are launching this big crowdsourced investigation into mental health units. And so we're keen to hear about your experience as well. And we're already hearing from some people now on the text line. If you have a story that you'd like to share, you can find more info on Hack's Instagram, but also you can go to abc.net.au forward slash mental health. And the stories are really important because privacy laws mean the media can't access information from hospitals. So uh, the media really relying on people coming forward with their stories to find out just how significant these issues are. Let's get into this a bit more now with an expert. Professor Jayshree Kulkarni is a practicing psychiatrist and head of psychiatry at Monash University. She's with us now. Professor Kulkarni, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks very much for having me, Dave. You've worked in mental health wards over years. In your opinion, how common are the kinds of stories like I've just heard? Look, the sad, uh, terrible story that we just heard is unfortunately not in isolation. And um, I think things have improved, but it's really important that there is a complete overhaul of the structures and the sorts of um, units that are available to provide care. I don't know the ins and outs of the Perth case, so I don't um, have any comments particularly there. But in general experience, we have a structure where men and women or people of all genders, as you said, are managed together. And, uh, of course, that that is a really difficult situation just in terms of the capital works, in terms of what the building looks like and so on, because we've got some very disturbed individuals who need care themselves, but while they're receiving care, they can have really quite uh, disinhibited behaviour or be out of control. Substances out on the streets, um, the amphetamine uh, type of medic dr- drugs can also make behaviour even more out of the person's control on top of whatever mental health problem there is. So when you look at all of this, it is really important that we think again about how we structure wards to actually provide a better way of safe and private care for people. And I've been pushing for women-only wards or women-only units for quite some time for this reason. So has there been any movement then in recent years? You have been kind of uh, leading the calls here. Is there this push for single-sex psychiatric wards? Is it getting anywhere in Australia, do you think? Look, I'm very heartened to say I think I think it definitely is. And um, just in 2021, we had the first ever women's mental health hospital at a private health facility in Melbourne. It's Cabrini Health. And uh, then there's also been another um, private health facility in Wollongong. And then we have a public private health uh, facility with Alfred Health and Ramsey Health happening in Victoria as well. And I've just heard from colleagues in Queensland that they're also setting up a private, uh, no, sorry, a public and private women's mental health unit. So these are happening, uh, but it needs 
the funding, it needs the will, and um, we we need to keep going because Florence is unfortunately not alone, and it it really cannot happen again. Um, her story, so um, I mean, how brave is she for coming out with this? But it's extraordinarily important that that we provide safe, private and dignified care for everybody who needs mental health care. And is that what we're seeing overseas as well? Is there a real trend towards single-sex psychiatric wards? The UK is ahead of us in that 2008, their uh, health administration uh, agencies decided that after a a national survey that there were assaults uh, for particularly on women uh, when they were being managed in their inpatient units and they actually passed a law saying that all the units will be segregated and they actually had stiff penalties for hospitals that transgressed and had, uh, say, men managed in a woman-only unit. So that's been going on since 2008 in the UK. The US is patchy. Um, and in a lot of ways, you know, we're ahead of this, the US system in care. And Europe has also got different situations all around uh, different parts of Europe. Asia, interestingly, has always had uh, segregated mental health facilities. And uh, so when we've talked to our Asian colleagues, they sort of looked at us like, you know, what are you, what are you doing? That's, that's just asking for trouble if you've got uh, co-mingled genders. So apart from you know, single sex wards, what else can be done? Are there other areas where Australia could really lift its game and and make wards, uh, psychiatric wards safer for people? Look, I think there can be lots of things that are that can be done, and for example, even the the design and the decor. I mean, why do we think that mental health wards should be dark and dingy and at the back of hospitals and you know have a sort of Charles Dickens era type feel to them? They shouldn't be. They, we should be thinking hotels and uh, modern designs. You can have flexible designs as well, so that you know there are ways to move walls so that if you need, you can have five beds being female and seven beds being male and then you can shift it uh, if, if the demand is there. The other question that often gets asked is what are you doing about transgender or people who are non-binary and I don't think we should ever let that issue get into the sort of obstacle part of this because it's not an obstacle, it's very easy. You ask the person what do they best identify as, where do they feel more comfortable, give the, give the consumer the empowerment that they will make a decision and it usually works really well. So for example at uh, the Women's Mental Health Unit at Cabrini, we did have a person who was a transgender male to female and she received really good care and it didn't, you know, the whole thing didn't come tumbling down. So there are ways to to actually make it all work, but we've got to think again and um, really put some, some dollars into capital works because that's also, you know, a part of it. We also need to then, of course, be engaged with the, the, the staff who are providing the care that um, you know, most most staff have got very good intentions. They're very keen to provide the best outcomes for their clientele, mm. but then if they're running short or if there's not 
many or if their training is not adequate in terms of understanding trauma and violence against people, uh, then that that's another area that we've got to look at. Somehow we've managed to um, downplay the role of trauma in the, the actual appearance of mental health and the role that trauma plays in ongoing mental health issues. Yeah. So that's another area. Trauma training is really critical well, for mental health staff. Look, there's certainly a lot of reaction from our listeners right now, people who've got their own experiences, also people who are surprised that this is an issue. We appreciate your insight. Professor Jayshree Kulkarni from Monash University, thanks very much for coming on Hack. Thank you. Hack. Researchers say Australian high schools are doing a poor job of giving career advice. On Triple J. How much attention did you pay to your career advice in high school? Like maybe you found it really good, helped you decide what to do after school. Because there's been a little bit of research into this and maybe not too surprising. A lot of people say career advice in schools is dry. It's focused too much on your grades. It's not about what interests you. And most of the advice is really heavily focused on university study. Like there's not a lot about other pathways into your dream job. I'm keen to hear what you think about this. How much did you rely on career advice at school? Was it helpful? Was it not? In the meantime, reporter Charlie McLean's been speaking to a few people. The end of school is a time of mixed emotions. While most are pretty excited about getting out there and kickstarting their lives, it can also be pretty stressful as you weigh up some major decisions. I want to get a good ATAR so I can get over to America on a scholarship. A lot of students rely on the advice of career advisors. They're there to answer questions and hopefully help point you in the right direction. But the reviews are mixed. I actually found out about this course through the careers uh, advice I got at high school. And I found that very useful and helpful. She helped briefly, but I wouldn't say it was, an over, it was more just seeking out from family and friends and where they went. Last year, researchers from Curtin University took a deeper look into high school career advice in Australia, looking at thousands of student surveys. What they found was students were pretty underwhelmed by the advice on offer at schools. The extent of career advice was pretty much subject selection and your subject selection was based on your grades rather than your interests. Professor Jane Coffey led this study and says advice in most schools is too focused on uni with students getting hardly any information on alternative pathways that don't involve a lot of study. Lachlan Andrews is one of those who decided to do things a little differently. I left school and found my way into a traineeship at the time, actually back in a school, working in a primary school, doing IT. He now works at Canva, a graphic design platform that's one of Australia's richest companies. He stumbled into graphic design by accident and was surprised Canva didn't care that he didn't have a degree. As a workplace for Canva, we've taken degree requirements off of all of the jobs that we have here. It's a trend starting to take off in some industries, especially where there are major skills shortages, such as the digital technology sector. Professor Coffey is worried that message isn't getting through to enough students who might not want to go to uni. The careers advisors themselves say they're doing their best. We don't always have that, that the time and the resources behind us to actually support the students individually as much as we need to. Lee Southwell is a Canberra careers advisor and says she thinks they're doing a good job of keeping up to date with how the workforce is changing, but it's too big a job for one person to manage alone. The, the demands of that one person to know the individual needs and pathways of 500 or 1,000 students uh, is really, really difficult. Professor Coffey wants to see more advisors in high schools and for career advice to be mandated in all Australian high schools, a decision currently up to the states. Let's embed this type of learning and this curriculum and this knowledge 
in the secondary schools really early on from year seven, so it's not just a one-off talk by a career counsellor. Lachlan says his story shows there are so many different ways to get into the work you love, and that's exciting for students. If you're really passionate about something, if you've got an idea, um, if you're really motivated and you want to give it a go, it's the perfect time to do those sorts of things. Hack on Triple J. Charlie McLean with that story. A lot of messages on this one. Someone says, I work in a high school. Our students have no idea what they want to do. We need to have more work experience days where they can get an idea of what different trades do, for example, so they can make a more informed decision. Millie from Melbourne says, I started working at a skydiving centre after high school. I would never have received that kind of advice in high school, and I'm glad I didn't really pay much attention to the advisors. Someone else says, after doing a quiz where I drew cartoons in my spare time, where, it said, where I said that I drew cartoons in my spare time and I liked debating, my career's advisor said I should run a vineyard. <laughs> I became a web developer. And then someone else said, in year 12 at high school, I did a careers quiz and it told me that I'd become a model. What am I supposed to do with that? Hey, some really interesting rogue advice going around. Lots of messages. Time to move on, though. Hack. Regardless of whether pill testing is in place or not, that's simply not a green light about the safety of that particular drug. We don't need a drug summit to say that pill testing at festivals and getting rid of drug dogs will make people safer. On Triple J. Later this year, Queensland's going to become the first state in Australia to introduce pill testing. We know that drug testing already happens in the ACT, but in other states like Victoria and New South Wales, there have been calls for pill testing for years. But the debate drags on, and you might have heard the horrible news over the weekend that two guys in their 20s died after going to the Knockout Festival in Sydney. It's got some medical experts worried because they're warning with a long, hot summer ahead and a lot more festivals, we could see more deaths. And they say governments need to be putting everything possible in place to avoid that. So will any more states jump on board with pill testing reforms? Joanna Lauder has more. I'm so sorry to the families of the two young people that have passed. I know how you feel. I really do. And I'm so sorry that you are now in the same position as I am and so many other families unnecessarily. That's Jennifer Ross King. Her 19-year-old daughter Alex died a couple of years ago after taking MDMA at a festival. She'd taken two caps before going into the festival because she was nervous about getting caught by the police. Now, after two more deaths at music festivals over the weekend, her mum is back pushing for changes. The government need to listen to the experts, please. Every time I hear a politician speak, something ridiculous comes out of their mouth. They are not experts. They need to implement harm reduction strategies within music festival environments this summer, now. Over the weekend, two men, a 21-year-old and a 26-year-old, died after going to Knockout Festival in Western Sydney. Police are still waiting for autopsy results for more details about how they died. But today, police charged a 23-year-old with supplying a prohibited drug, causing death over one of the deaths. My concerns are ongoing drug use. Obviously, uh, police enforce the law. Uh, we don't condone drug use. Um, and this, is, this shows um, that people can die at music festivals. Um, 
drugs can have some horrible consequences. It's kickstarted the debate around pill testing at music festivals. Back in 2019, a New South Wales coroner recommended pill testing, as well as getting rid of sniffer dogs at festivals. New South Wales Greens MP Kate Fairman says the government should get on with it. If the government had listened to the recommendations from the deputy coroner all those years ago, we would have had pill testing and we would not have had drug dogs at these festivals over the weekend. At the moment, drug checking happens in the ACT, both at festivals and at a regular centre. It means that people can get a sample of their drugs tested and find out what's in them and get advice if they want. The New South Wales government has committed to holding a drug summit next year. And today, the Premier, Chris Minns, left the door open for pill testing in the future. Well, look, I'm not ruling it out. Um, There's been an ongoing trial in the ACT over the last couple of years. But he went on to say that he doesn't think it's a magic fix. We've really got to be cognizant of the fact, and I'm concerned in relation to this debate, that people may believe that if pill testing is in place that it becomes a safer option. MDMA in particular, during a 37 degree day with a lack of shade in the middle of the day with a lack of water is a toxic and extremely dangerous mix. And it always has been. Pill testing is not gonna stop that from happening. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. Joe Lauder with that update and hearing from lots of you on the text line about your opinions on this. You know, we talk about it a lot on Hack, pill testing, drug testing. I want to ask an expert now what their thoughts are on all of this. Dr. Mary Harrod is the CEO of the New South Wales Users and AIDS Association. They look after DanceWise New South Wales, which is all about promoting safety at festivals. Dr. Harrod, thanks for coming on Hack. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. These latest deaths in New South Wales, a horrible start to the festival season. Are you worried that we're going to see more in the months ahead? Um, Yeah, I think like everyone, I'm worried about it. Um, We have extreme heat coming at us and uh, MDMA is particularly potent right now. So I think everyone's fears are really well grounded. What do you think of the New South Wales government basically not ruling out pill testing in the future, but also not committing to it, which is what we've heard today? Um, Look, I think it's positive that they haven't ruled it out. Um, But, you know, the fact is, is this has been recommended by many, many people for many, many years now. And it's very well supported by the community. And there's absolutely no reason why they couldn't implement it and implement it quickly. There's um, there's people that are ready to go. Our program is on the ground at festivals and could support a pill testing site. So it's, it's still for me, um, the premier's uh, reasoning, it's, he's not wrong but he's not giving the full picture of what a drug checking service could do. Are we still getting a lot of really valuable data and research out of the trials and systems that have been set up in other parts of the country like the ACT? Yeah, I mean, the the ACT site, um, for example, you know, one of the heaviest days that the ACT site was used was on the day when Spilt Milk was in the ACT, which is a major festival. And, you know, a lot of the information around adulterants uh, that's coming out of the ACT is really good and really useful um, for the community down there. And, you know, the the Premier's point that 
the mix of heat and MDMA is not going to change if we have drug test tech checking or pill testing. I mean, that's true. But the thing that drug checking also does that he's not talking about is it puts somebody who's going to take a drug in front of people with expertise who can give them advice. And that's a really important intervention. And that's what we need to get more of happening as well as drug checking. Aside from the drug checking, is there other stuff that you think needs to be happening as well in states, especially the bigger states like New South Wales and Victoria, where we do see generally more of these bigger festivals? Absolutely. I mean, New South Wales and Victoria are, to my understanding, quite different environments because New South Wales has a very intense police presence on the ground at festivals, at a lot of festivals. There's dogs, there's, um, you know, I've been to festivals where there's a line of like 25 to 30 police, people are being strip searched. And, and as far as I know, that doesn't happen in other states. And that was another key recommendation from the coroner was to remove that very heavy police presence because it not only um, causes things like the really super sad tragedy with um, Jenny Ross King, who, who, uh, preloaded before going into a festival so that she wouldn't get caught by the police. It also creates, uh, like it heightens the environment, it heightens the stigma around drug use. And that stigma and the criminalization makes it a lot harder to get appropriate messages around safer using out to people. We're definitely hearing uh, from people loud and clear on the text line, mixed opinions. Dr. Mary Harrod from DanceWise, we appreciate you coming on Hack. Thanks very much. Thank you. And someone on the text line says, testing doesn't mean people uh, won't take it. Uh, That's someone's opinion there. Someone else says, politicians seem to insist that harm reduction is the same as condoning drug use. Another person, how about pill testing for everyone, not just at music festivals? And someone else says, people should be able to fork out an extra 50 bucks each for their festival ticket and fund their own testing. Take responsibility for your own actions. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack. On Triple Jack.